I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 3. As we continue our series through the book of Romans, we come this morning to the uh, end of chapter 3. So Romans 3, verses 27 to 31. Paul has been talking about righteousness, the righteousness we attain through faith apart from the works of the law. And he comes now, he kind of returns to his uh, diatribe style, his question and answer uh, style in verses 27 to 31. And this will prepare uh, the way for entering into chapter 4, where, Ab- where uh, Paul will talk about Abraham being justified by faith. So if you have, uh, if you've turned there in your Bibles, I invite you to stand this morning for the reading of God's Word. Romans 3, verses 27 to 31. So Paul ended in verse 26 by saying that God is just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And so he says in verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. You may be seated. When uh, big things happen in life, you have to process the implications. And so, for example, when you find out you're pregnant, you have to make plans for all the details surrounding the, the delivery, and you have to get your home ready for the baby. You have to think about things like, like names and, and shared responsibilities and, and sibling dynamics and all, all those kinds of things. If your job requires a move across the country, you, you have to consider the cost of living and, and where to live, and you have to find a new home and a new church and a new school and, and new friends and new shopping places and all, all that kind of stuff that goes along with a move. When big things happen in life, you have to process the implications, and, and that's kind of what we see here at this point in Paul's letter to the Romans. He, he has just delivered big news. And now he takes a moment at the end of chapter 3 to to process the implications of that big news. And the the big news is that we are justified before God through faith alone. That's that's the the big news that that Paul has been working up to throughout these first few chapters. And now he's announced it, he's, he's delivered it, that we are justified before God through faith alone. We are made right with God, not by anything we do, not by any merit we achieve, not by any righteousness that we have within ourselves, but by faith alone. And after delivering this big news, Paul takes a moment now in our text this morning to process the implications. And we're going to dive into those implications in just a moment. But before we get there, I want to just take a sort of a a little detour, if you will, Uh, before we look at these implications, I want us to make sure that we have a clear understanding of what it means to be justified by faith. And so, 
The word justification is a translation of the Greek word dikaio, and it is a legal or a judicial term. To be justified is to be declared innocent or righteous before God as judge. If you want a, a helpful way to maybe think about, to get at what it really means, you can think about what the opposite of justification is, and the opposite of, of being justified is to be condemned. The one who is condemned is still under the guilt of sin and has to pay the just punishment for their sin. The one who is justified, on the other hand, is acquitted, is found not guilty before the judgment seat of God. Our justification is secured the moment we receive Christ in true faith. As the hymn uh, says, O oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every believer, the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. So there is a sense in which the, the Bible speaks of our justification. In fact, this is maybe the, the main sense in which the Bible speaks of our justification as a present reality that is secured in the past event of Christ's death and resurrection. If we are in Christ, then we have been justified eternally, irreversibly, and gloriously. But there's also a sense, as, as so many things in the Bible, there is always this, this already but not yet dynamic to it. And it's the same thing with our justification because there is a sense in which the Bible also speaks about our justification as a future reality. The justification that Christ has already accomplished for believers at the cross will be publicly declared at the day of judgment. As one writer put it, our justification is the future promise of a finished work. And it's important for us, I think, to have a, a proper understanding of justification well, for, for many reasons, but, but one of them being that there are some, especially in, in Catholic theology, who have tried to make it mean something different. And so they, they talk about justification as a healing act that, that removes spiritual sickness and is based on the, the work of Christ plus our own works and, and our own inherent righteousness. But the biblical view of justification is something far different from that. The biblical view of justification says that it is not a healing act, but a judicial act. It is not something that removes spiritual disease or sickness, but it removes guilt and condemnation. It's not based on the work of Christ plus anything else. It's based on the work of Christ alone. It's not based on, on uh, any inherent righteousness that we have or we attain, but it's, uh, but it's based on his imputed righteousness to us. And Paul says that this justification is not something we aspire to or achieve, but it is something that is given to us through faith. We are justified by faith alone. And faith is a matter of believing to the extent of complete trust and reliance. It is to profess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. It is trusting in him and relying wholly on him as the only one who can save you from your sin. And so biblical faith is, is both a matter of the mind but also of the heart, and both of those are, they, they have to be kept together, that you can't have faith if one of those is missing. I think it, we often, we, we tend, especially Western Christians, I think, tend to, 
to drift away from the heart side into the, the head side and, and, think of, and, and think of faith as a thinking matter. But the, the heart has to be tied into the head as well. John Calvin gave this definition of faith. He said, faith is a firm and certain knowledge. There's the mind part of God's benevolence toward us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ. But now here's both elements together. Both revealed to our minds, the thinking part, and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So faith is not only a knowledge of the things of, of Christ and the, the truths of God's word, but it is, it is, a, a feel, uh, it is uh, owning those things in your own heart. So this is the, the big news that, that Paul has put before us in Romans 3, that we are justified before God through faith alone. And now at the end of chapter 3, Paul uh, pauses a little bit and helps us to process the implications of this big news. And so we'll walk through them together. He shows us first that the doctrine of justification by faith excludes boasting. Paul says, where then is boasting? It is excluded because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, it's kind of awkward language, as, as Paul sometimes uh, will use awkward language. Uh, but when Paul talks about the law that requires faith, I think that the sense that what he's talking about is the principle of faith. He's saying that because we are justified before God, not by works and not by anything that we do or anything that we offer, but by faith alone, because of that, he says, there is no room for boasting. Let me give you an example. And then because it's duck hunting season and I'm passionate about duck hunting, let me give you an, an example from duck hunting. So suppose that I take you duck hunting one day and, and I do all of the work. Uh, I do all the scouting to find out where the birds are. And because you've never been hunting in your life, uh, you, don't, you don't have any of the gear. You don't know anything about what to do. So I provide all that is needed for the hunt. So I, I provide the boat. I provide the, the, the decoys. I provide the, the waders. I provide the, the gun. I provide the ammunition, the, the food, and, and all the expertise. And all that goes into a successful duck hunt, I provide all of that. And I take us out to our hunting spot, and I do the work of setting up the 10 dozen decoys, and, and I uh, call in the ducks with the duck calls that I've practiced over the years, and when the hunt is over, the only birds that we got are the birds that I shot because you missed everything that came in. But at the end of the day, just, out of, just because I'm I, the goodness of my own heart, I decide to give you all of the birds that we got just because I want to be generous and I felt bad that you were such a, had such a horrible display of shooting. So I decided to give you all the birds. And now, what if you took those birds home and began boasting to your family? Look at these great ducks that I got. Man, look at what a great hunt that was. You should have seen it. Oh, man, it was so awesome. I, I, what, how great am I to provide such wonderful birds for my family? Well, that would be a ridiculous thing to say because you didn't do anything to provide those birds. In fact, if anything, you, you made it harder because you were you know, flailing about and chasing the ducks away. You didn't contribute anything at all. I provided everything and gave them to you as a gift. And that's what Paul says 
about our justification, that there's no room for boasting because we do nothing to contribute to our own justification. God provides everything and he accomplishes everything and then he gives it to us as a gift simply to be received through faith. And yet there is something within us in our fallen nature that is inclined to boasting. In our fallen condition, there is within each one of us this this gravitational pull toward self-centeredness. And boasting is the language of the self-centered. It is one of the many expressions of the root sin of pride. And C.S. Lewis said pride is the one vice which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else. And of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. And he went on to say, it is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. In our fallen nature, we are, we are bent toward prideful boasting. But, but Paul says that the doctrine of justification by faith excludes boasting. As Paul said to the Corinthians, drawing from the prophet Jeremiah, let the one who boasts, boast not in yourself, not in anything, anything that you do or accomplish or achieve, but boast in the Lord. And again to the Galatians, he said, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this morning, do you, do you boast in the Lord or do you boast in yourself? You know, sometimes I think we, we find these subtle ways to boast in ourselves or we cloak our boasting in the robe of false humility, these humble brags, and so you take a selfie on, on a really good hair day. You take a selfie on a really good hair day when the lighting is just right and your skin is glowing and, and you think you know, it's this really ide- ideal kind of picture, and then you post the picture on social media with some kind of comment that, about how awful you look without any makeup on. Or you casually drop names in your conversations just to give you the appearance of being a little more important than you really are. Or you quote scripture to your friends and neighbors, not because you authentically want God's word to speak to them, but because really deep down what you really want is for them to see and notice how knowledgeable and how pious you really are. If we really grasp the beauty and wonder of justification by faith alone, Paul says it leaves no room for boasting, not even for those subtle forms of, of boasting. We know we have nothing to boast about except God and what God has done for us in Christ. And so that's the first implication that Paul reveals that justification by faith excludes boasting. The second one is that justification by faith unifies believers Paul says, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Now the point that Paul is making is that the ground, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There, there is only one God, Paul says, and, and there's only one way to be justified before this one God. All sinners from all walks of life are justified in exactly the same way, and that is through faith alone. 
And so it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, black or white, rich or poor, educated or or illiterate, white collar or blue collar, none of that matters. We are all sinners who are justified before the one God by the one faith in our one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this is a message that the Christians in Rome really needed to hear because as we have seen in earlier studies, uh, the community of believers at Rome was, it was a mixed community of, of Jews and Gentiles, and they were fractured and conflicted with, with these deep and seemingly irreconcilable differences. If you remember from way back to the introductory messages on, on this series, uh, the church in Rome, uh, just to give you the, uh, the uh, reminder of the historical context, the church in Rome uh, most likely had Jew, was Jewish in origin, probably from uh, uh, Jews who had gone to the, the Pentecost to worship and had, had been converted and then came back to Rome, and, and so probably had Jewish roots. But then in the year 49 AD, the Roman emperor Claudius ordered all the Jews to leave Rome because of some disturbances related to Christianity, so he kicked them out. And then they returned to Rome in, the, in large waves and numbers five years later. But by this time, the social distance had, uh, between Jews and Gentiles had really grown and the, and the divide had increased. And so now the Gentiles were leading the church and they were less inclined to observe aspects of, of Mosaic law that the Jews still practiced. And so the Gentiles looked down on the Jews for still clinging to these practices. And the Jews looked down on the Gentiles for abandoning them. And the Jews were proud of their favored status as God's chosen people. And the Gentiles were proud of their freedom. And one of Paul's aims was to bring these deeply divided and conflicted groups of people together. And he knew that the only way to do that was through the cross. It is at the cross that the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles crumbles. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 2, isn't it? He said, speaking of Jews and Gentiles, he said, Christ's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. You see, at the cross, all stand on level ground. At the cross, there are only sinners justified before the same God by the same faith and the same Savior. And so the doctrine of justification by faith is a doctrine that unifies believers from all walks of life. And what was true of the Jews and Gentiles in in Rome is still true of believers today. And it, it is so easy for us to to draw boundaries and to focus on those things that divide us. And man, especially in our, in our uh, context in the last couple of years, it has been, become so easy to be polarized and, to be, and, and just to let those, those deep divides cause conflict and tensions and hostilities. And we create dividing walls of hostility over differing political views. We, we carry forward patterns of prejudice. We, we feed... Uh, the, the tensions and the conflicts within our own family systems by, by judging and criticizing and failing to listen and understand. And it's when we come together at the cross that we are able to see beyond our petty differences and disagreements. It's in the shadow of the cross that we see that we are all sinners, and that we are bound together through the same faith and the same Savior. As Paul said to the Corinthians, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? It is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. 
And because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. My encouragement to you this morning is that if you have within your own hearts those, those Jew-Gentile-like barriers and divisions and hostilities and tensions between yourself and another fellow believer, whether it's somebody in your family or somebody in this church family or somebody in, in the broader community of believers, if there are those kinds of, of tensions and hostilities and, and clashes and, and barriers, my encouragement, my exhortation to you this morning is to repent of them, repent of whatever needs to be repenting in your own heart, and to come together under the to the cross of Christ and under, understand that we are all, through faith in Christ, part of the one family of God. The doctrine of justification by faith is a doctrine that unifies believers. The final implication that Paul reveals is that the doctrine of justification by faith upholds the law. So Paul says, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, he says, we uphold the law. See, Paul understands that his teaching about justification by faith might raise some serious objections. In fact, he's probably most likely already heard these objections, especially from his Jewish listeners. They think that his teaching, and he's been accused of this before, is antinomian. Anti meaning uh, opposed to or against, nomian coming from nomos, meaning the law. So they think that his teaching is opposed to the law, that, his teaching, he, that, that Paul is anti-law in his teaching. If sinners are justified by faith alone, then doesn't any concern for living in obedience to God's law just get thrown out the window? And Paul says, no, not at all. In fact, he says the doctrine of justification by faith doesn't nullify or abolish or put an end to the law in any way. In fact, he says it upholds the law. It establishes the law. Well, how does it do that? Well, there are two main ways that the doctrine of justification by faith upholds the law. The first is that we are justified by faith in Christ, and Christ himself was the perfect and complete fulfillment of the law. So he, he lived in perfect obedience to all of the demands of, of his Father. Uh, Jesus himself said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Justification through faith in Christ brings about this, this great dual exchange, right? We, not only does he take upon himself the punishment that our sin deserves, which is the part that we so often focus on and sometimes only think of, our, uh, of it in, in those terms, that we are forgiven, our, our sin is taken away because he paid the price. But there's this other aspect to the exchange that happened at the cross, and that is that he also credits to us his perfect righteousness, so that it is as if we had lived in perfect obedience. As Paul said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So justification by faith upholds the law because our faith is in the one who has fulfilled the law. And the second way that the doctrine of justification by faith upholds the law is that when we are justified through faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit uh, compels us to live in obedience to Christ and his commands. The two go together. 
when, when, when conversion takes place, when the heart is regenerated, it is a heart that is regenerated unto sanctification, unto a life of obedience and holiness and the pursuit of righteousness. So our, our justification doesn't give us license to do whatever we want. Our justification launches a lifelong pursuit of holiness and sanctification. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And Paul will say later on in his letter that through faith in Christ, believers are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live in obedience to the law. That's, that's one of the things that happens with our conversion. When the heart is regenerated, that's what Ezekiel talked about, what Jeremiah talked about. God writes his law on our hearts, and he works within us now to, to empower us to live out in obedience to his, to his law. So Paul says in Romans 8, God condemned sin in the flesh, meaning through the sacrifice of Christ at the cross, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Holy Spirit. With regeneration comes a putting off of the old self. We no longer live according to the flesh and its desires. Now the Spirit lives in us, prompting us and compelling us and moving us to live in obedience to God's law. The 18th century theologian Robert Haldane, I think, summed it up well when he said, Can there be any greater respect shown to the law than that when God determines to save men from its curse, he makes his own son sustain its curse in their stead? and fulfill for them all its demands. The doctrine of justification by faith upholds the law. When big news breaks, you have to process the implications. And there is no bigger news than Paul's announcement of justification by faith. And he has shown us in these verses the three major implications of this great doctrine. It excludes boasting, it unifies believers, and it upholds the law. John Wesley was an ordained minister in the Church of England for a whole decade before he grasped the gospel. During that decade, he was very pious and devout. He prayed and read scripture for two hours every single morning. He preached to large crowds of people. He ministered in prisons and in hospitals, and, and he would often teach Bible lessons late into the night. By all outward appearances, he was an exemplary Christian and kingdom servant and, and, and leader, but he was miserable, like Luther with kind of the same dynamic and the same reason for being miserable, underneath the veneer of living as a follower of Christ, he was in fact a self-absorbed man entrenched in self-righteousness. He was relying on his own works and his own piety to give him a right standing with God. And like Luther, he just, he could not find the assurance that he craved. Well, that all began to change in the year 1735. Wesley was on a a ship when, it, when a great storm descended and waves broke over the deck and, and, and wind was ripping through the sails and it seemed certain that the ship was going to sink. And in that moment, Wesley realized that he had no assurance of salvation at all. He was terrified of death. And on that same ship at that same time, 
There was a group of Moravians, and they were singing hymns, and they, they just appeared to have this utter peace and calm and joy about them. And so Wesley went to them, and he asked them, how, how can you be singing when, when you know that you might die? How is it that you can just be here singing hymns? And, and they said, well, to live is Christ and, and to die is gain. And if this ship goes down, then we get to be with our Lord forever. And, and Wesley realized in that moment that they had something that he did not have. They had the assurance of salvation that he craved. Wesley saw that he had been relying on his own works to secure his justification before God. And what he most deeply needed was to embrace Paul's doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, unfortunately, in that moment, it, it didn't necessarily last for Wesley, and he kind of went on to, he didn't, he didn't ever fully, I don't think, grasp this great doctrine of justification by faith and continued to kind of venture back towards his own works. But in that moment, he saw the great need to embrace justification by faith alone. So the question for us this morning is, are you, like Wesley, still limping through life, relying on your own works, plagued by doubts, haunted by misery and gloom? Paul's gospel calls you to come with empty hands and needy hearts to the cross, to behold the beauty of this indescribable gift that you could never earn, and to discover the joy of justification by faith alone. So let us, as we prepare for communion, come to the table with empty hands and receive the gift. Let's bow together. Lord God, as we prepare our hearts for communion this morning, I pray that you would impress upon us the, the wonder and beauty of this great doctrine, that we are justified, that we are put right with God, not by anything we do, not by any works we accomplish, not by any merit that we achieve, not by any inherent righteousness we have, but by faith alone. Lord, if we do not have the assurance that we crave this morning, because maybe we're still, like Wesley, relying on our own works, our own righteousness, our own pious actions and deeds. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would draw us out of that. And I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, impress upon us, O oh Lord, our neediness before your throne, that we have nothing to offer and everything to receive. Lord, hear our silent prayers of preparation this morning.
Lord God, it is so hard for us to surrender ourselves. It's so hard for us, Lord, to come out of our own bent towards self-centeredness and pride. It is so hard, O oh Lord, to truly grasp that we are justified not by anything that we do or contribute, but by faith alone. I pray, O oh Lord, that as we eat the bread and drink the juice this morning, that we would know and have eyes to see that it's all of you, and it's all by your grace and not by us. Lord, what a gift, what an amazing gift it is to be made right with you, with you to be justified, to be declared not guilty before your throne because of what Christ has done for us. And so we say with Paul that whatever we had considered to be gains before, we now consider loss for the sake of Christ. That we have, we have nothing that, that is worth anything. And what is more, we consider everything a loss because of the sur surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord for whose sake we have lost all things. We consider them garbage that we may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes through obedience or that comes through works or that comes through the law, but a righteousness that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God as a gift on the basis of faith. Oh, Lord, may we live in gratitude and praise for this gift of righteousness that comes by grace through faith alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.